When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lunch, dinner, free money, what's not to like? Never before has so much been given away to so many. Chancellor Rishi Sunak got up in Parliament yesterday and basically gave away the store. Vouchers for meal deals when you're eating out, vouchers for making your house more green, a stamp duty holiday for home buyers, a block on VAT for the hospitality business and even money for companies to take back workers who are currently on furlough. The £30 billion rescue plan for Britain's economy was served up to a chorus of cheers around the country, especially from 16 to 24-year-olds who are now furnished with a kickstart work experience scheme aimed at staving off mass youth unemployment. As ever, uh, the newspapers this morning vary uh, in their sort of uh, measurements of what Rishi Sunak gave away and how much it's actually eventually going to cost. The Daily Mail uh, have said it could be £300 His demeanour was cool though, uh, calm and collective. His manner was firm but fair and it did more than enough, I think, to confirm that he is definitely a contender for future Prime Minister. Those who suggest he's only popular because he's giving so much money away, I think I'm missing the point. Rishi is a class act, and the existence of his shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, on the Labour benches will worry him not a jot. It really is um, like men against boys. It's not good. How will his measure yesterday, though, change what you do over the next few weeks? And can you honestly say you don't agree with anything that he's done? We'll be checking in with John Rental, the chief political commentator at The Independent. Always a wise uh, choice of words from him. Uh, We'll find out what he made of the economic statement. One group who are still looking for answers, of course, are the forgotten freelancers uh, who are still looking for some support from the government. We'll find out why they are still missing out. 0344 499 1000 plus. Coming up a little bit later on, Brendan O'Neill joins us from Spikes Online to discuss the latest cancer culture victim. Uh, it's Killing Eve star Jodie Comer, whose apparent crime is that she is dating an American bloke who may or may not be a supporter of Donald Trump, if not actually, heaven forbid, a Republican. For goodness sake, how much more ridiculous does this right-on mess uh, have to get? At least she's not dating Johnny Depp. That's another story altogether. And we'll be going live to California to get the latest from Madonna Harvey in San Diego. Donald Trump's niece has written a rather, um, shall we say, degrading book about the President of the United States of America, suggesting that there's something wrong with him. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. If you're not doing it yet, you should be doing it. And that is, of course, meaning only one thing. We are live streaming on YouTube so you can watch the show uh, as well as listening to it. It's very popular on there, growing uh, in popularity with every single day that passes. So do get on there, uh, subscribe to it, uh, like it, and you will get all the other great stuff that we do, including, of course, Plank of the Week, which is out there uh, since yesterday as well. So uh, right now, though, let's get straight to it. Let's look at the front pages. Uh, The Daily Mirror, as we did say yesterday, seems to have lost the plot. Uh, But that would be, I dare say, because... Most of the journalists are a little bit demotivated, given that most of them are being fired. Chicken feed is what they say. £10 eating out discount for all to kickstart the economy. Labour say we wanted a new deal, but we just got a meal deal. The Guardian says mass unemployment fears, despite Sunak's plan for jobs. I mean, only the Guardian can come up with some uh, negative material around a £30 billion giveaway. Uh, Sunak serves up £30 billion rescue. Uh, half price meal deal chancellor is what the Independent says. Uh, but lots going on. Let's find out from John Rental what he made of it all. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very uh, much thought- indeed for joining us. What did you, well, let's just get your initial thoughts, really. Go ahead. 
Well, I, mean, I, I agree absolutely with uh, what you just said there, uh, Mike. I think Rishi Sunak's a class act. Uh, I mean, it's not just presentation, but he is very good at, uh, at speaking in the House of Commons. Uh, they, the, the whole place listened carefully to what he had to say. He came across uh, with his trademark uh, bipartisan reasonableness, which is a very important quality in uh, politics. Uh, one of the things that Tony Blair did best, uh, certainly in the early years, uh, just coming across as an undogmatic, uh, pra practical politician, uh, um, just doing the sort of things that the Labour uh, Party would be doing if it was in government, or if the sensible parts of the Labour Party were in government. If, if Gordon Brown were Prime Minister, now he would be doing exactly what Rishi Sunak's doing. Hmm. And, as you say, I was surprised that Annalisa Dodds didn't uh, didn't welcome it for the Labour Party. Well, that's the problem for the Labour Party, isn't it? Annalisa Dodds, I'm afraid, and this is nothing personal against her, just hasn't really got it, I don't think. I mean, I can't help uh, but be reminded of the time she appeared on Politics Live with Andrew Neil uh, before she got this lofty position of Shadow Chancellor and was completely ripped asunder by basically having had no preparation and by stating things to a very seasoned journalist that simply weren't true. And she didn't really have a grasp of anything. Well, I don't think that's fair. I thought have she... Have you watched it? No. I, I, I mean, you know, I've seen Andrew <laughs> take people apart and it's not a pretty sight. Um, and yes, she is inexperienced, but, um, but so is Rishi Sunak. I mean, Rishi Sunak was uh, plucked from... Uh, I mean, he, this time last year, he was he was a very junior uh, local government minister. Uh, and now he's uh, the second most uh, important person in the cabinet. And uh, he's certainly risen to the challenge. Uh, Annalisa Dodds, uh, no doubt, will rise to the challenge, but she just hasn't uh, quite done it yet. And she was right to identify some of the problems uh, in Rishi Sunak's uh, statement. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't perfect by any means. I mean, I do I have all sorts of problems with the uh, stamp duty cut. That uh, that mostly gives benefit to uh, to better off people, especially uh, people with London properties. Um, and there is a huge deadweight cost to this subsidy to em employers to keep people on. I mean, you know, they may well be. Uh, intending to keep a lot of people on anyway and will still be claiming uh, large sums of public money for doing so. Hmm. I guess the problem, John, is that there are people who will always take advantage of free money um, who probably don't need it, but who will take it anyway. I mean, we've seen several celebrities kind of do U-turns on it after they got found out. You know, the shock horror uh, that crossed their faces when they realised that some accountant or other had done something that they should be ashamed of. But, you know, you can't really legislate for that, can you? The fact is, is that, you know, this is an immensely complicated kind of set of circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, you know, oh. exacerbated by the fact that, you know, on the one hand, we've got half the country saying we shouldn't even be coming out of lockdown, never mind, you know, paying for people to stay at home. You know, it's 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 a really difficult, um, you know, balancing act, I think, that the government is having to, to perform. And I think the good thing about what Rishi Sunak did yesterday was he gave the impression, at least, that he knows what he's doing. And I'm not by any means casting any aspersions on anyone else in the cabinet who may not give that impression. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from the, apart from all the other members of the government. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that, uh, that's absolutely right, and and I agree with you. I think broadly, it was uh, that that package yesterday was uh, was the right uh, was the right balance. And I mean, in fact, you know, I mean, I would say that the furlough scheme probably has been a little bit too generous, mm. um, and I think that was probably because uh, Boris Johnson uh, insisted on it as, uh, as as prime minister. I'm not sure the treasury wanted to go quite that far. No, uh, it's difficult is going to be um, winding it down and, mm. and, and out of it without causing uh, too much damage. And, you know, there's going to be a huge amount of economic damage uh, anyway. I think he's, I think Rishi Sunak's doing his best to mitigate it. But I think there are, you know, there are criticisms that uh, an intelligent opposition uh, could make and ought to make. Um, and unfortunately, I think Annalisa Dodds is not, uh, is, is not making those criticisms uh, tell at the moment. No, and I think that is also part of the problem, that, you know, when you do offer the furlough scheme to people uh, and, and effectively pay them not to work, you know, I know people uh, who, who are in are in the businesses that we're in uh, who are actually quite happy to continue working from home and are actually not really looking forward to going back to work. And I think there's a lot of that going on. And that itself will create a kind of sluggishness for the economy to come out of. 
Yes, absolutely. And and there will be you know, permanent, well, not permanent, but long-term problems if you're not going to run uh, public transport at full capacity. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to run the economy at the sort of levels that, uh, that ensure, you know, reasonable prosperity for everyone um i mean and those are those are the the, the dilemmas that uh, that rishi sunak's wrestling with and uh, as you say i think he's uh, he's he's produced a couple of uh, really smart tactical uh measures which are uh, targeted uh, on specific sectors the host the vat cut for hospitality that is uh, that is entirely sensible and the uh, and the voucher scheme. Uh, I shall be I shall be going out to my local restaurant every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday throughout August to claim my uh, to claim my ten pounds. And are you going to give it some to, to somebody in the restaurant as opposed to just pocketing the uh, the difference? What? What? Just increase the tip? You mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I mean, you know, you don't need the money, John. I mean, you're minted on you. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, no, but this is a, this is about a, an economy-wide stimulus, isn't it, for yes. the, the hospitality sector and for, and for restaurants and bars and getting people back out there, giving them an incentive to get out, back out there and uh, and spending money. And I'll uh, I'll be playing my part. Yes, well, I'm going to do the same. I'm going out tonight for the first time, table for four, uh, in a very nice restaurant on Kensington High Street. Um, and my um, uh, sort of ex- my, what I'm looking forward to is not paying VAT because the VAT uh, for people going out to sort of expensive ish restaurants. And I don't mean that to sound in any way pretentious um, is that the VAT <laughs> is, is, is really punitive. You know, you get to yeah. the point where you get the end of the meal and you go, blimey, you know, there's another 20 quid per hundred that gets added on. Yes, absolutely. It's huge. It's a huge slice. And uh, cutting it to uh, cutting it to five percent is uh, is going to be quite a significant uh, uh, boost. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to come in. You're going out tonight. I'm yeah. not sure it's coming in until until. Well, uh, I know the owner, so I'm going to demand that he doesn't charge me VAT, whether it's there or not, because this is the same guy <laughs> who came on this show a few weeks ago and said, "I'm opening up on July the fourth, no matter what. I don't care what the government right. says." So, you know, I think there's a there's a fair amount of wiggle room, I think. But uh, but I mean, I was funnily enough, I was thinking this morning, John, you'll you'll appreciate this. Um, apparently, it's the uh, I believe the the 19th anniversary or the 20th anniversary or so, uh, depending on how you count it, from 2001 of the office first being shown. And I had a quick look back to see what was going on. And of course, Tony Blair was prime minister. Peter Mandelson was just resigning for the second time from the cabinet as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, it seems an absolute age away, doesn't it? But Rishi Sunak, as you said earlier, kind of conjures up that kind of Blairist confidence. Yes, I mean he's a very Blairite uh, politician, not just in his manner, mm. but in his whole approach to po- to politics. I yeah. mean, he did. Uh, I mean, he gently told uh, Annalisa Dodds off um, for being quite so. Uh, partisan i mean she pretended to i mean she well, she didn't even pretend i mean she just said we are a constructive opposition and then uh, spent the entire rest of her response um, attacking the government yeah well she's uh, learned and, that from her boss hasn't she sir Keir starmer who uh, with, well, one, with I, one with one hand you know shakes your hand and with the other hand gently stabs you in the side yeah well i think Keir starmer's rather better at pretending to do the constructive bit of the construction <laughs> it's a damned yeah. with faint praise Which, that <laughs> whereas, whereas I think Annalisa Dodds didn't didn't even pretend, and uh, and Rishi Sunak rightly told her off and said, uh, you know, I'm trying, you know, I'm doing my best to try and work with the uh, with the opposition, and 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 he's actually worked with the TUC as well, the Trade Union Congress. Right. Uh, I mean, even they were welcoming the uh, the youth thing uh, the other day, the 16 to 24, um, you know, work experience boost. So, I mean, if the TUC are, are, are actually nodding it through, then sh- surely the, the opposition should as well. You would have thought so. Um, I mean, I do think that is one of Rishi Sunak's great strengths is that he has managed to keep the TUC on board. Mm. Uh, and that really is uh, that really is impressive bipartisan uh, reasonableness. Uh, and I think that's what what make what marks him out as the as the obvious successor to uh, to, to Boris Johnson? Mm. I mean, I'm not saying, yeah. I mean, Boris Johnson's surprisingly popular at the moment. I think, which is uh, you, you know, it comes as a shock to to some people who, who who see the media bashing he gets for his handling of the coronavirus. But um, but isn't know, but got, isn't that more about John how the media is out of touch and so out of touch with the way that people think in this country? Because you know, after all, whatever you may think of Boris Johnson, most people in this country voted. Uh, to put Boris Johnson into into the uh, Downing Street, uh, and he's got an eighty seat majority yeah. as a result. 
Yeah, but it is kind of the media media's job to um, criticise the government. I mean, well, it know, is, it's... but I mean, the criticism that he gets is very personal and very venal. I saw a tweet from a, um, a fellow broadcaster whose name I'm not going to mention uh, from another radio yeah. station, which was basically calling him a liar, calling him, uh, you know, out for, for for being a hideous kind of hater of the poor. I mean, just really personal yeah. kind of stuff. That... Completely, I completely agree. I don't, I don't think that kind of uh, that kind of attack is, is is warranted or even particularly effective, as we've seen the opinion polls still suggesting that uh, that Boris Johnson is quite popular, but not nearly as popular as Rishi Sunak. And mm. that that, but I mean, I think that puts the Conservative Party uh, as, as an institution in a very strong position because you know if Boris Johnson should become more unpopular over the next uh, three years. As he's almost bound to do, being mm. prime minister, you, you're sort of you're in a war of attrition uh, with uh, with with your popularity ratings. Uh, then the Conservative Party can just press press a button and switch to uh, to, to a more effective uh, and more popular leader who who would be very well matched against Keir Starmer at the next election um, and uh, fight that election on the centre ground because yeah. Rishi Sunak is a Blairite centrist. Sure. And so is. And that's where the victories lie, whatever anybody may think one way or the other. What do you make so far of Sir Keir Starmer's kind of approach? It got quite feisty yesterday in Prime Minister's questions. Um, he seems to be slightly less forensic now uh, and more kind of on the attack. But the trouble for him, of course, is that he has to go along with most of this money being given away. And he can only really pick away at the sidelines of things that he finds I mean, like asking for an apology yesterday. I mean, after a while, it just yeah. got to the point where you're going, I'll oh, just give it up. It's not happening. <laughs> Boris is not going to do it. Stop asking for it. It doesn't work. Well, also, the t- I, I mean, I thought I thought that was fair enough, but I thought the tone was was, was slightly too hostile. I thought uh, he he was he was getting too bitter uh, about yeah. that. I mean, I, I, I think Boris Johnson clearly uh, you know, shouldn't have said what he what he did, but he did say that he... Uh, as as prime minister takes responsibility for everything the government does, uh, and then and then Keir Starmer asked a question uh, demanding that he take responsibility for for everything the government did, mm. and you know Boris Johnson rightly points you know said you know you're not listening to uh, you're not listening to my answers, right. and that's that's inexperience. I mean Keir Starmer is just not not quite as good on his feet as uh, as people think he he must be because he's a top lawyer. Um, but generally, I think Keir Starmer has done a very good job, as I say, of uh, pretending to be uh, constructive, um, to do the constructive part of constructive opposition, uh, while actually sticking the knife in. And I think, um, you know, that's his job. And that's uh, I think he's doing that quite well. Yes, I think so. But I think the trouble for for for, um, for Starmer, though, is that he hasn't got a great team around him. He hasn't got a particularly strong front bench. And I think Labour need to find some bigger beasts and some bigger voices, don't you? Don't you think? Well, I think, no, I think he's got he's got some some very good people. Um, I mean, I think um, you can't I think you don't need more than one hand to count them, though, I bet. Thomas Simmons, the uh, shadow Home Secretary, is a very effective uh, parliamentary performer um, who who knows what he's doing. Um, I, I then start to to run out of uh, that was one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, look at the government. I mean, the government has got Boris Johnson, who's who's you know very effective in his own particular way, although yeah. he's stepping in. I it. think Rob has had a great week. I mean, his his in- introduction of these measures against the likes of China, Russia and Saudi Arabia, I think, uh, has stood him in very good stead and, and raised his profile, I think, in a, in a massive way. Yes, but I mean, he's 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 not um, he's not Rishi Sunak, um, you know, and I don't think he will ever be quite as uh, quite as popular as the as No, the, but as the I, mean, I mean, Rishi Sunak's a superstar. Labour haven't got anyone like that, including Keir Starmer. <laughs> No, that is true. Well, that's why. I, well, no, I think Keir Starmer is very good. Uh, I, you in, wouldn't in, want to sit next to him on a long train journey, would you? Well, yes, I would actually, because um, you know I'm I, I'm always asking asking him for an interview, and I. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I um, but yeah, no, I think no, Keir Starmer. I would I would very much want to sit on a uh, sit next to him on a train journey because I think he is a very interesting politician, and I think he's very good at it. He's very different from. Um, uh, in his in his manner from from Tony Blair, say uh, he, he's he's very good at uh, at, at serious and uh, coming across as, as as serious. 
and that's what the country needs at this uh, at this difficult time. And I think he will thrive over the next uh, few years, whereas I think Boris Johnson is going to struggle. Yeah. Now, I be believe it or not, we've we've run over massively here, so I apologise. But I'll ask you one final question. I've been surprised this week that actually we're not back to normal more in the sense that I thought that there was going to be more trains introduced. I thought more people would be coming back to work. It doesn't quite seem to be happening. And obviously the middle of London, particularly the West End, is still deserted. A lot of shops still not open. A lot of restaurants not opening because they don't have any tourism. And so, you know, I, this is going to be a lot uh, longer sort of developing, I think, than we thought. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as a, as a cyclist, I've noticed that, that the levels of traffic are pretty much um, back yes. um, in on many of the streets. I mean, you're right, the city itself and the West End are very quiet, um, but there is quite a lot of traffic on the roads. Um, so I think parts of the economy are certainly coming back. And I think that was the genius of, uh, of, of Rishi Sunak's announcement yesterday, was to try and focus uh, the help on, uh, on the hospitality uh, sector, which people think of as, you know, just sort of people having fun and mm. going out and, and getting drunk and so on. But actually, it's an absolutely critical part of the economy. Yeah. It, Oh, it's massive. Yeah. Absolutely right. John, uh, I think we've just lost you there, which is probably maybe just as well, because we are really, really pushing the time uh, on this. But we do want to hear from all of you out there. We will find time to talk to the rest of you as well. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, uh, as ever, uh, finds me to be completely right uh, in my analysis of what happened yesterday. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We were just talking to Ben Everett there, Conservative MP for Milton Keynes North. He said uh, that he has been lobbying on behalf of some of his constituents who are PAYE freelancers uh, trying to get uh, notice taken of their claim that basically they're not getting any help from the government despite the fact that the government seems to be helping pretty much everybody else. Let's talk to Ellie Phillips now, presenter and journalist uh, who's been campaigning uh, for PAYE freelancers. She's been on this show before talking about it. Uh, she's not too happy, I understand, uh, that yesterday's announcements did not include anything uh, for the PAYE freelancers. Ellie, very good morning to you. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. I don't know if you heard my conversation with Ben Everett. I mean, he sounded as though he was um, hoping to try and get something done. But it does seem a bit weird, does it not, that uh, despite £30 billion plus uh, all the other money that's been handed out over the past sort of uh, three months, that you guys are still not on the list? Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely devastating for so many people. Like you said, it's it's actually almost four months on now. I was on your show, I think, about a month ago, yeah. probably longer, um, saying, you know, these are the problems that are happening. This this is this is there, and it's just so disturbing that Rishi Sunak continues to just act as though these people don't exist. And by by these people, I mean taxpayers. Mm. I'm talking about three to five million taxpayers. Um, and I, I said this earlier today, but to put that in context, uh, three million people is about the equivalent of the size of Wales. That's 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 who we're talking about here. And that's not even talking about you know their dependents, their mm. children. And that's not even taking into consideration those people who just haven't been furloughed. So employees that haven't been furloughed. These are specifically uh, self-employed people who've been discriminated against by Rishi Sunak. Um, and now it is exclusion it's not forgetting people now it's exclusion he knows there are the gaps there he's been offered simple solutions and yet he's choosing to ignore them and he keeps just sticking to this ridiculous mm. line that oh we've had the most generous scheme in the world no one is saying that he hasn't helped people and we're really really thankful that he has helped people what we're asking him to do is to fix the gaps and the gaps are huge and they keep getting worse and the longer he leaves them the worse they're getting. Who can survive for four months without zero income? Mm. And he keeps saying that there are these other support schemes in place if you can't access the two main support schemes. But that's just, they're just insufficient. And it's not even true. We, we had a, um, a recent survey done by Ipsy in association with um, the University of Edinburgh. They did a joint research study and they showed that PAYE freelancers are freelancers together only 3% have accessed universal credit during this lockdown. And if you put that in context, PAY freelancers specifically can't access either scheme. So they can't be furloughed because they're not employees and there are 1.7 million of them. And then on the other hand, they can't access self-employment income support scheme because they are taxed at source. And these people are taxed at source. They pay some of the highest rates of tax. There's no room for fraud, you know, regardless of what anything's been banded around about that. Um, and also regardless, it doesn't really matter how the tax has been paid. 
it has been paid. It's been paid, whether it's through, you know, um, PAYE, whether it's been through um, tax returns, or even whether it's through dividends, it's been paid. And long term, I mean, I, I'm the spokesperson forgotten PAYE, but I've got to mention Excluded UK as well, because like I said, there are these three to five million excluded taxpayers. And when you talk about limited companies, he says he wants to invest in jobs, but he hasn't helped these limited companies. And there are about 700,000 of them. They employ people. They're only small companies, but say, for example, each one of them employs two people. Well, then that's a lot more people that aren't going to have jobs to go back to. Whereas if he invested properly and gave these these business owners and gave these freelancers and gave these excluded people the support that they deserve and need, not that they want and not they would like, that they deserve, that they need to survive, then they would have these jobs to go back to. They would be able to create more jobs. The freelancers who, who, who he's saying, oh, well, we've got these, you no, know, we're going to put all this money into having work coaches. Well, I'm not being funny, but 1.7 million freelancers have spent years of their lives training, ed- educating themselves, getting the experience to work in these industries that they were working in very well beforehand. They were contributing to the economy very well beforehand. And now they're being told, oh, no, we can't bother investing you. So we're going to try and create some new kind of job for you. We don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. We've never trained it. Has it anything has, any sense. has anything changed, Ali, since the last time you and I spoke? In terms of have have any of the uh, PAYE um, uh, freelancers been able to return to work? And 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 in, uh, and also, what have you been able to, to? What sort of conversations have you been able to have with anyone in the government about what they could be doing? Yeah, I mean, some some have been able to get m- more work. You know, now lockdown restrictions have lifted slightly, but I mean, so many industries still haven't opened yet. So lots haven't you know we, we talk about the film and tv industry arts and culture full of freelancers absolutely ram, rammed with them um they are they can't get work again you know they can't go back to work those industries aren't open um and no matter what he says about grants for specific industries those grants for example the recent arts and cultures grant are predominantly for the buildings and for the company owners mm. the large company owners they're not for the small micro business owners and they're not for the freelancers they're not for the people and that's what he's forgetting here. He seems to be putting big, big, big business first and forgetting the people that actually make things happen, the people on the ground. You asked about what's happened since. Um, not not a lot, if I'm, if I'm honest, in terms of the fact that Rishi Sunak has still not acknowledged that there are these three to five million people. However, there was uh, three weeks, almost three weeks ago now, the Treasury Select Committee, which is a Tory-led, Tory-backed Treasury Committee, um, they published their interim report, which said, which stated that there are at least one million plus people who have fallen through the gaps of the support scheme. Uh, they outlined specifically, you know, who they found that they were and said there are probably more people here. They even offered recommendations. We, as a forgotten PAYE, then um, sent a joint report with um, a response with Excluded UK, giving our, you know, feedback to that and, and added suggestions about how those gaps could be filled. We've offered these solutions have been ignored. And now um, we have formed, so Excluded UK have formed an APPG with Jamie Stone, who's um, the Lib Dem MP, who's helped to set this up. There are now over 200 MPs who signed up to that APPG, including over 50 Tory MPs. And the whole purpose of this APPG is to find ways to help the people who've been excluded. It's called Excluded UK. So they're obviously very aware that it's happening. There is clear support, you know, to, to try and do something. But Rishi Sunak keeps just pretending like it doesn't happen. Yeah, and it's I very strange. I can't understand it, really, because, I mean, I don't know whether you've been able to put a figure on what would be required uh, as, yeah. as, as, a, as a sort of a rescue package for the yeah. people you're talking about. But certainly, if he's giving away sort of five grand to people for making... I mean, effectively, what, what he's saying is, is that if you wanted to make your house more energy efficient, you can have 5,000 quid, but you can't have anything for not being able to work it just doesn't make any sense does it no it doesn't make any sense and you know what was really insulting with this um uh, eat out to help out people can't feed themselves so it's no point giving them a 50 percent discount on eating out when they can't even afford to feed their children at home that just seems utterly ridiculous and um, they wasted 10 billion pounds on this track and trace system that didn't work i've estimated and i am not an economist so this could be way wrong but if you say there's 3 million people who've been excluded, which we know there are at least that many people. And you say that, you know, okay, 15 grand per person, which 
isn't a lot of money to you know in the grand scheme of lives um but that's kind of what other people have gotten more or less if you say that two and a half grand per month for six months is more or less what people were eligible to access if they could access the schemes and um, that's about 15 grand ahead so if you look at that um that would be about 45 billion to support all these people and people might say oh, that's too much money but these are taxpayers mm. so why should these taxpayers not be getting that help but others are at the end of the day these taxpayers that have been excluded will be helping to pay back the grants that other people have had they've paid into this tax system for you know their entire working lives right. and they get they're being excluded and when he says his standard review, you know, report, which is, oh, we've got these amazing systems and those other, everyone's access help. That is a lie. And also when he says these other systems available, that's not parity. That, that does not give people equal support. You can't give some people, predominantly employees of companies, you know, two and a half grand furlough and some self-employed people access to two and a half grand, but then say to others, oh, well, no, there's loans for you, which is debt. So you're pushing people into debt. You can't say to them, oh, well, you can live off universal credit. If universal credit is enough, why did they introduce these schemes to give people more than that? Mm. It's clearly not enough. So to say, oh, well, you have universal credit, most people can't access it. If you have any, if you have savings above £16,000, which you might have been using to save for a deposit on a house, um, for a baby that's on its way, for a wedding, whatever that might be, you can't get universal credit. If your partner, not someone you're married to, just the person you're living with, if they have any savings or if they carry on working, you cannot access universal credit. Um, and so there are so many loopholes, mm. the grants he talks of, the special grants, the criteria is far too difficult for most people to be able to access. Yeah, and, and it's, definitely, it's, definitely, it's definitely very unfair, Ellie. I've got to stop you there just because we're running out of time, but thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, we will keep pressing them. We will keep trying to make it clear to them uh, that it's not a fair situation. And, you know, it really does seem very strange, doesn't it, that uh, the government, which has been so helpful to so many people, and I certainly don't want to take anything away from what Rishi Sunak has done, uh, but just seems kind of blind on this one particular subject. Because if you're a freelancer, there's a reason why you're a freelancer. They've already changed the tax code to make it more difficult for people to be freelance. They're already ta taxing you at source. They're already telling you uh, that basically you should be treated the same, despite the fact that you don't get holiday pay, despite the fact that you don't get a pension, despite the fact that you don't get any of the protections that people who are properly employed by companies get. They want you to be treated exactly the same. But then when it comes down to it, they don't want you to be treated exactly the same. And I think that that is wrong and I think that's something they need to fix. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So here's the deal, right? Uh, the BAFTA winner, uh, who is called um, Villanelle uh, in Killing Eve. She's a bisexual assassin. She's played by Jodie Comer. Uh, she's got hundreds and hundreds of social media complaints calling for her to be cancelled, right? Because she appears to be dating somebody who might support Donald Trump. Listen to those words carefully. Who might support Donald Trump. 
Trump. Uh, she's moved uh, in with a guy called James Burke, uh, who where they've said to have met in Boston. Uh, he's now believed to have moved to Liverpool, where she lives. A picture posted online shows the pair on a boat with a group of people. A video, supposedly from her account, but tagged with Mr Burke's Instagram username, shows her singing in the back of a car. And it may well be uh, that he has previously uh, issued uh, words of support for Donald Trump. I mean, it's just too ridiculous to believe. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill. Brendan, very good uh, morning to you. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, pretty badly, actually, uh, (laughs) because I didn't really think it could get quite this ridiculous. I mean, you can sort of understand, you know, the trans lobby getting worked up about um, J.K. Rowling. But to get worked up about somebody who's dating a guy who may or may not be a Trump supporter Mm -hmm. is quite remarkable, even for this lot. It is remarkable. I think it really shows what a poisonous climate we live in these days and just how incredibly intolerant, unforgiving and actually pretty nasty people are becoming. Mm. You know, I I saw one headline in Newsweek. Newsweek used to be a respectable magazine. There's a headline in Newsweek which actually says, why is Jodie Comer being cancelled? Question mark because her boyfriend might support Donald Trump. And you think, what planet are we living on where Newsweek is seriously reporting on the fact that an actress is facing cancellation, i.e. she's being demonised and people want her sacked, simply because of her boyfriend's alleged political beliefs. It's gone crazy. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we've seen, of course, all of those people who used to march around on uh, on various Extinction Rebellion demos and probably the same on on Black Lives Matter, you know, never kissed a Tory. In fact, I think there's a few (laughs) Labour MPs who have got that on their their T-shirts as well. And, I mean, it's a kind of superhuman version of that, isn't it? It is like that. And um, whenever I see those people in those T-shirts, I always think Tory's probably breathing a sigh for relief when (laughs) you see those people. But the thing is, uh, it is like that. And it really shows, you know, there was this old, terrible feminist slogan in the 1970s, which was the personal is political. Mm. And I'm convinced that that slogan was really started the downward trajectory of modern politics, because now we have a situation where we don't have political life and private life. Everything is mixed together Mm. and everyone's personal life becomes politicized. So your identity is political, the color of your skin, who you choose to sleep with, all these things have become political statements. And the more that private life becomes politicized, the more we have this psychotic situation where people make a political stance about the fact that they won't sleep with a Tory, Mm. they'd never kiss someone who voted for Donald Trump. So this mashing together of politics and personal life is actually giving rise to a really divided and and difficult and intolerant uh, climate. Well, you probably know I speak to quite a few people very much like yourself who believe in what you believe in, which is basically freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Lawrence Fox was with us last Saturday when we did a show from the pub. Uh, In fact, we should have got you down there. I don't know what we were thinking. But, you know, he was talking about how he may never work again as an actor because of what he said on Newsnight. And when you think about what he said on Newsnight, and I watched it again the other day just to remind myself, he didn't actually say anything which wasn't true. He didn't say anything which was in any way inflammatory. He didn't say anything which which could have got him into hot water, uh, you know, um, legally. And it's just extraordinary that he now finds himself as a very distinguished actor, possibly never able to work uh, doing his job again. I think uh, Lawrence Fox is a very good example of the current, the problem with the current climate. So is J.K. Rowling, in fact, and a few others too, because what these people have done is said perfectly normal, perfectly legitimate things that huge numbers of people will agree with them about. So uh, Lawrence Fox says, you know, let's not obsess over everyone's race. Let's just treat people as individuals. That used to be the kind of thing that progressive people would say, but but now you can apparently be cancelled for saying that. All that J.K. Rowling has said is that there are men and women one cannot become the other, although we should treat trans people with respect. And she doesn't want people with penises to go into women-only spaces like domestic violence no. shelters, changing rooms and so on. That's a normal point of view. It so doesn't seem particularly we're... radical, does it? No, not radical at all. And there will be millions of people out there nodding along with her and horrified by the abuse that she gets and the abuse that Lawrence Fox gets. And uh, I think what they demonstrate, and there are others too, they really show that uh, you, you don't have to say anything horrible and racist and genuinely prejudiced to get cancelled these days. Mm. You simply have to disagree with the politically correct orthodoxies of our time. And if you disagree with those political viewpoints, you're in serious hot water. Well, wasn't it strange in J.K. Rowling's case as well to find that uh, when she did issue those you know, words of wisdom, uh, which is what I'm calling them, you know, all of the people who've made an absolute fortune as a result of what she created, uh, i.e. Mm. Harry Potter, all the actors from Harry Potter, came out against her 
And they were like, hang on a second, you guys wouldn't even have any money if it wasn't for her. <laughs> I thought that was outrageous. I thought it was like a celebrity version right. of, you know, in Stalinist Russia when people <laughs> would denounce their parents. I thought it was just like that because, you know, she's the mother of their careers. You know, she gave them the mm. fame that they've had. They, they got their fame through the Harry Potter phenomenon. And then they come out pointing the finger at her like crazy people in a witch hunt in the 1700s, denouncing her in public, distancing themselves from her. I thought it was so creepy. Yeah. And it really demonstrated that we're entering a kind of Stalinist culture mm. where everyone wants to point the finger and shame people and hound them out of public life simply because of their point of view. I thought what those three actors done was particularly shameful. And J.K. Rowling to her credit, has handled herself with enormous dignity throughout all of this because she's getting misogynistic abuse. People are sending her photographs of their penises. People are sending her pornography. It really, really demonstrates that uh, if you cross the line, as far as the woke brigade is mm. concerned, they will do anything they can to try to destroy you. And I think that's quite a scary phenomenon. It really is. And also, they don't give up, do they? Because they are mm. supposedly uh, the tolerant woke brigade, as you call them. Um, but in fact, they're more intolerant, <laughs> I think, uh, than the Taliban. And people have been uh, have been cancelled for saying that, for heaven's sake. But what about the other thing? Uh, I'm watching uh, Twitter yesterday. Noam Chomsky, uh, who's described as a sort of US intellectual from the left. You know, this is a guy who, uh, as some people pointed out, more or less um, uh, sort of defended the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields of uh, Cambodia. But he thinks this has now gone too far. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> that just made me laugh. There. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange situation where... Uh, the thing about Noam Chomsky, the interesting thing about Noam Chomsky, for all his weird political positions in the past, including his slightly strange attitude towards the Khmer Rouge and others, yeah. he's always been solid on the importance of freedom of speech. And there's a great quote from him which says something like, if you're only defending freedom of speech for people you agree with, you're not defending freedom of speech right. at all. You've got to defend it for everybody. And that's the key point that these people don't understand. So when Rebecca Long-Bailey, for example, was dumped by Keir Starmer because she retweeted that article in which Maxine Peake said a comment which was interpreted by some to be anti-Semitic, all these leftists were you know, rallying behind her and saying, this is outrageous. But when someone on the right is cancelled, which happens far more frequently, or when someone who is un-PC gets cancelled, they're in the mob itself, demanding the cancellation of those people. The key argument people have got to realise is that if we are all going to enjoy freedom of speech, it has to apply equally, even for people who are offensive, even for people we disagree with. Everyone across the board has got to have the right to express themselves freely. Yes, well, Neil Oliver uh, is on this show as well once a week, and he said the same yesterday. Mm -hmm. But he also issued what I thought was quite a chilling sort of warning, because he basically was talking about, you know, culture wars and wars in general. And it doesn't take much for a war of culture like this to turn into an actual civil war of some kind in which people actually start attacking each other. Well, you know, I've always thought that censorship is more likely to give rise to violence than freedom of speech, because what censorship does, it convinces people that they have the almighty right to never be criticised, to never be challenged, to never have their belief system called out or ridiculed or made jokes about. And that makes them intolerant. That licenses them to insult people, attack people, and sometimes violently attack people who dare to criticise what they say. Right. I mean, the perfect example of this is the massacre at Charlie Hebdo. Because what we had there was the killing of people for the supposed crime of mocking Muhammad. Yeah. And that's where you end. If you protect Islam or transgenderism or any other uh, belief system, if you protect them from any kind of criticism, you will convince people that it's okay to assault people who dare to criticize them. That's the real danger yeah. in all of this. You know, one, one Guardian journalist said in response to the letter in Harper's Magazine about cancel culture, she said these are all just people moaning because they're famous people who are being criticized by ordinary members of the public. One of the signatories is Salman Rushdie. Right. He's been in hiding for 20-odd years because he's under threat of death from Islamist extremists. You know, these people know a thing or two about the violence that can come out of this 
incredibly intolerant mm. climate. And I think we've got to get a handle on all of this, defend freedom of speech before it does cross the line into something like violence. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I would I would hold up to the light uh, with some scrutiny any Guardian writer who thinks they speak for the general public. <laughs> I don't know if they've ever met anybody from the general public. The general public who ring into this show uh, certainly do not have a problem with freedom of speech, certainly do not have a problem with anybody saying anything. You know, most yeah. ordinary people are quite happy to listen to somebody's view uh, and then either agree with it or disagree with it. They don't want to stop them talking. Absolutely right. And that's such a central uh, component of freedom of speech. People think freedom of speech is just about the right of the individual himself or herself to stand up and say something. That's obviously a a central part of it. But it's also about the right of the audience to listen, to weigh up the ideas for themselves and to decide for themselves if it's a good idea or a bad idea. What censorship does, it it infantilizes us. It turns us into children. It says that there are certain things you should never hear or see and we are going to protect you from them. So it turns guardianistas into these kind of moral guardians who must protect the rest of us from being offended. It's incredibly paternalistic, incredibly censorious, increasingly poisonous, and we've got to start pushing back against it. I think we do, and I think with the help of of people like yourself, Brendan, we are going to do that. Because the other side of that coin is that not only do they want us not to see certain things, they also want us to see certain things. So they will continue to push their agenda, as they do, for example, through uh, shows on television, as they do through shows on radio, as they do through movies, you know, as they do, uh, you know, like when they cancelled smoking, for example, you know, nobody's now allowed to smoke in a film. Why the hell not? Well, that's exactly right. The, the reason they engage in this kind of censorship, they don't do it for fun, although I'm sure some of them might do. It's because they want to clear the way for their own agenda. Mm. That's all there is to it. The reason they want certain people not to be allowed to speak on campuses, the reason they want certain people banned off TV, the reason they'd probably like to see people like you taken off the airwaves, there's a sinister motive behind some of this, which is they want to clear the decks so that they can get up there and promote all their woke nonsense Mm. and authoritarian... I was going to swear. Authoritarian (laughs) nonsense and all this other stuff. It's not easy to stop swearing when you start talking about this stuff. It's very difficult. And and basically they want to re-educate the public and turn us into mini versions of them. Mm. That's why freedom of speech is so important because we need those competing ideas and we need to defend our own ideas and use them to fight back against these new authoritarians who are a menace to public Mm. life. Do you think it is something to do with um, uh, anything other than virtue signalling so that they can tell their mates how virtuous they are? Because I wonder sometimes if there's more to it. You know, I mean, I know some of them are making money out of it because I don't think I've ever seen so many people working in charities uh, in my life or think tanks that sort of, you know, purport to, to be sensible but in fact are pushing some weird agenda. You know, there's more and more of these kind of millennials working in jobs which have been created as a result of this kind of group think. I think uh, virtue signalling is a part of it. You know, they all love to advertise how decent and wonderful they are. I mean, look at Um, Prince Harry, for example. Well, exactly. Prince Harry (laughs) under instruction from Meghan Markle to be as (laughs) publicly virtuous as possible. Uh, So that's that's a central part of it. But I do think there is something else going on, something far more serious. Mm. And that is a situation in which, you know, the education sphere, the universities, popular culture increasingly, the BBC, all of these institutions, which really are the institutions that promote ways of thinking, promote ideas, promote culture, they've all been taken over by this new ideology. They've all fallen victim to this idea that there's only one way to think about race issues, one way to think about gender issues, one way to think about sexuality issues, and anyone who deviates from these correct ways of thinking is a bad person who must be punished. All of those key institutions in public life are now uh, adhere to that outlook. And, And that's the thing that's really worrying, because it shrinks the space in which the rest of us, which I think is the majority of society, in which the rest of us can push what we consider to be important ideas. And I think a lot of people are sick of the divisiveness of identity politics. They're sick of being told that they have to think racially all the time and they would rather just treat people as individuals and treat everyone equally. They're sick of being told that uh, uh, um, uh, someone with a, a penis who puts a dress on is instantly a woman and they want to stand up and say, We don't agree with these things. Mm. We don't believe these things. And we have the right to express our dissent from this ideology that you're pushing down our throat. Yeah, absolutely right. Brendan, a pleasure as ever to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Brendan O'Neill from Spiked Online, uh, quite rightly saying, we do need to push back here. We do need to stop accepting uh, that these people who we don't agree with 
can cancel other people that they don't agree with just because they don't agree with them. It's absolutely nonsensical. I mean, Jodie Comer uh, is a great actress. I wasn't particularly taken by Killing Eve. I couldn't quite get into it. I didn't quite uh, get it, if you like. You know, I thought it was a little bit too far-fetched. However, uh, she is genuinely uh, a BAFTA award-winning actress. She is genuinely thought to be very good at what she does because she's decided to take it upon herself to go out with someone who does, we don't even know for sure is a Trump supporter. You know, I mean, it really is quite mad, isn't it? Quite ridiculous and crazy. Bonkers, even. I'm trying to think of some other words that you're not supposed to say uh, before saying them, of course. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got much to do. Uh, we're here, of course, until one o'clock. We're hearing, by the way, that there's going to be a Boris Johnson press conference this afternoon uh, at some point. Uh, Boris Johnson working from Downing Street today. Not entirely sure yet uh, what the nature of that will be, uh, but will be probably relatively routine. I don't think we need to stand by for any massive announcements. Uh, uh, but uh, obviously, the more we find out about that particular situation, the more we will bring to you uh, between now uh, and one o'clock, which is, of course, time for Ian Collins to take over uh, from uh, one until four. Right now, though, uh, time to talk to our favourite documentary addict. It is, of course, uh, Mr. Bill Borrows. Bill, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning to you, Michael. How's it all going in the big wide world of documentaries? Yeah, well, it's we're still locked down, aren't we? Um, there's still documentaries to be watched, and uh, shows no sign of abating. They're still, even though we are locked down, it's getting increasingly hard to make them. They are still turning them up. There's still there's still a bit of wriggle room left. Yeah, I mean, interesting you say that. I mean, I suppose um, being as you've been involved in quite a few of them, we should take the opportunity to ask you how hard it is to make documentaries in this uh, particular climate, and how long normally it takes to make them because it's not like a, a drama series where you can just sort of assemble a cast and go and find a location and then film it presumably there's an awful lot of research <clears> you need to do an awful lot of um, journalistic work that you need to do oh some of them can take five six seven years to get to the screen right um a, a lot of the stuff that's been going on during lockdown will have been research on stuff that can't be filmed yet because of all the travel restrictions yes um but plenty of people beavering away and coming up with ideas and of course there'll be a whole generation of documentaries about the pandemic yeah you know they'll be made and filmed uh, you know as we talk individually but um yeah it takes a long time to get it to the screen normally there's a lot of you know there's a lot of people have got to sign off on it and the idea itself is one thing but then getting everybody in the right place at the right time you know it's, 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 Takes, it takes more than a drama, I would say. Yes. Uh, got to, to, to say, I'm surprised to see that you've got two BBC documentaries on here today, so they're obviously not having any trouble uh, finding the money to do them. <laughs> Well, funny you should say that because um, the Rockfield one, which I'll come to at the end because it's not on until next week, um, that, that had BBC money in it, but it was originally intended to be a theatrical release. That was going to go on cin cinemas worldwide. Oh, yeah. Um, but it had to pull because of COVID. But because BBC had put some money into it, then, you know, obviously they said, OK, well, we'll, we'll share it on the network. So, mm. All right. So well, let's start with Unstoppable then. Sean Scully and the Art of Everything. <clears throat> well, I don't know if you heard of Sean Scully. I haven't. Um, Right. Well, I hadn't either, and that will send the liberal intelligentsia with their eyes raising to the ceiling, because he, he's probably Britain's richest artist. Is he? Um, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's... Um, and this, this is the nub of it. This is... I think I don't know if he's playing with the art world or not. This is why I like this guy. I, I watched it because it, it described him as Britain's richest artist, and like you, I thought, well, I haven't heard of him, so I'll watch it. <clears throat> this guy is an abstract painter. Now, you can either get on the side of the fence that says painting different coloured lines vertically uh, or horizontally, and charging a million dollars for it is um, like Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> or you can go into emotional abstraction and talk about you know, two and a half thousand words and what it actually means. Right. Now, I'm, uh, this guy genuinely is an artist, but he's also a working class guy who uh, was born in Dublin, mm. um, single mother, but grew up in, the, in South London and got involved in gangs and all kinds of different things. He worked as a plasterer, but he always knew he wanted to be an artist, and he was inspired by seeing Van Gogh's um, chair, which um, most of us will be... Yes, I've, I've certainly seen that, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he says himself, he says, my paintings are so simple. He, wa he wants people to see his paintings and say, these paintings are so simple, even I can do it, which is what I thought about Van Gogh. Now, I wouldn't say he was a Van Gogh, but these paintings that he, he takes an afternoon or a day maybe to do, and they normally retail for about a million dollars. He's got his own private jet. But the thing about this guy, why he's so fascinating, he calls himself the left-wing Donald Trump of the art world. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's a bit of chutzpah about him. He's, he's, he's so self-regarding, it's hilarious. He, he says at one point, he says, I couldn't be discouraged the same way as Martin Luther King or Bobby Kennedy. They believe so much in what they believe, they don't mind if they get shot, and I don't mind either. Mm. <laughs> 
I'm you just know, looking. So I'm just looking at some of his uh, some of his paintings. There's there's sort of abstract um, squares and lines, and and you know they're they're nothing particularly uh, remarkable. I wouldn't say, but uh, but I suppose that's part of the trick, isn't it? Well, it is. And when you watch him, I think the Telegraph described him as um, well. He's a big man. He's into his martial arts, and you can tell he can handle himself, mm. even though he's seventy three. He sounds like Michael Gombon doing Sid Vicious, <laughs> which he does. But the um, the, the beauty of it is he actually controlled his own market. In, in the 80s, um, Saatchi, who famously controlled the market because he bought so much modern art, yeah. he sold 11 scullies, 11 of his paintings, which to the rest of the art world says, this guy's finished, everyone's moving out, they're not buying him as, a, as an asset mm. anymore. Right. Because the, so thing about the, the thing about a lot of, what, a lot of the stuff Saatchi bought, though, was that uh, if it wasn't for him, nobody else would, would have been buying it. Well, it's quite true, but what this guy did, he bought back his own art, now he's, he owns most of his own art. He's bought them back right. and he controls the market. He sells one or two, three pieces a year and spends the rest of his time touring the world, opening exhibitions. He's a fascinating guy. And I think the, the art world genuinely scared of him because he is a, a working class guy who knows what he wants yeah. and is about getting it. You know, and as he says, you know, here I am in my private jet. Yeah. So he's a bit different from um, Damien Hurst, I suppose, in that sense. I think he's got time for Damien Nurse, but um, yes, he is. I mean, he is a bit different in that respect. I think he's a different generation. He's the post-war generation, isn't he? You know, the, the guys who prospered during the 60s and 70s, you know. I'm not sure that exists anymore, but, um, you know, no, he's, he's a fascinating bloke. You yes. know, he, well, my dad yeah. was an artist, so I've got a bit of a soft spot for uh, for artists, particularly if they're a bit eccentric. You know, he had terrible trouble uh, dealing with anyone who wanted to kind of judge it. There was a time when he would hawk it around various galleries in London, um, and they would sort of study it, and it used to wind him up something rotten because he would always say, "You know, how the hell do you know if it's any good? You know, I'll tell you if it's any good or not because I'm the artist." <laughs> it's that thing about teachers teaching, isn't it? You know, doers do and teachers teach. But yeah. um, but that's I think why you will like, you will actually gravitate towards. I think the guys when he goes into um, an art gallery, or he, if somebody criticizes his painting, they are actually physically scared of him. Yeah, quite right. an imposing guy. Well, exactly know. right. And so, is this a one-off then, or is it is it more than one part? No, it's a one-off. Oh, okay. It's a one-off. All right. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about Rockfield then. Well, let, let's come to Rockfield at the end because it's, it's not on yet. Um, but the, 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 another dot that fit in nicely before that, and it's, it's uh, another what-if, really. It's called Longshot. Okay. And uh, that's on Netflix. Um, and it's been out a year or so, but um, it didn't necessarily get the amount of viewers that I think it should have done. Mm. It's only 40 minutes long, which is quite unusual for a dot, particularly mm. a Netflix dot. So this is also just one part, is it? So one parter, yeah. Right. You could do this one in the lunch hour. Um, it's incredible. You know, it's a guy about, it's a Dodgers fan, um, baseball fan, Juan Catalan, and he's wrongly accused of killing someone. Now, the, the death sentence, he's facing the death sentence, and the um, the prosecuting attorney's nicknamed the sniper right. because he picks out people and selects a death sentence for them, which is absolutely remorseless in the way that only American female attorneys seem to be. Right. And um, this guy fits, the, the photo fit, fits him exactly. He's got previous, he's been inside, his brother's a gangster. This woman who was shot, the girl who was shot, the 16-year-old girl, testified against his brother. He was in court when it happened. It looks like he's banked to rights. <clears throat> now, his alibi is that he was at a Dodgers game. Mm. So can he prove that? Well... They tried to get the footage of the game right. and go to the crowd scenes and everything else, but it wasn't high res enough. Mm. So he was despairing. He was thinking, well, that's my only alibi. And, you know, it's looking, she's already said it doesn't count. If you can't prove you're there, it does not count. And then he remembers this guy walking up and down the aisle um, while he was there. And they did a bit of digging and they got in touch with the Dodgers. And it turned out that they were filming, mm. they were filming an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, okay. In... In the stadium at the time he was there. So not only that, they were filming it in the bottom handy, seats really, where he was. That is, that is, that uh, is so very they, handy. Well, it's a, well, when you're facing a death sentence, <laughs> um, it, it, again, it's that what if. What if he'd stayed at home and watched the game and not gone to the game? Right. And um, basically, they phoned the, the company and say, look, can we can we have a look at your footage of the stuff you haven't put? He said, well, it's in production. You can't see it yet. He said, look. My client is looking at a death sentence. We need to see what footage you've got. So eventually they let them in. Mm. And eventually they find, about the sixth tape in, Larry David actually walks past him. <laughs> and they've got that on the footage that they didn't use in the series. Right. And raises his arms in the air for no reason. And they've actually got his alibi there and then. Right. 
Um, fantastic. But there's a little bit of a twist in the tale because the murder time doesn't actually tally. He could feasibly have done it, but there's been a lovely little twist at the end. So right. I won't give that away. Okay. All right. Sounds interesting. Uh, Rockfield now. Now, Rockfield. Have you heard of Rockfield Studios? <clears throat> I think so, yeah. I'd ring the bell. <laughs> but Rockfield Studios opened 51 years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's a farm in Wales, and it was the first residential studio, recording studio in the world. Yeah. Is it where Led Zeppelin About went? Then, it isn't where Led Zeppelin, it's where Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. Um, and, you know, the, the, the list of Robert Plant is actually on this film because Robert Plant did his solo stuff there. Okay. Um, but they were around in the, well, it started in the early 60s and originally they knew Joe Meek and George Martin, but these two guys mm. are Welsh farmers. Right. They don't even like the record, the record business particularly. But they had this um, rock and roll change their life, another what if moment. They saw Elvis and they wanted to kind of get into music, so they had like a jazz combo and all the rest of it. Right. And they started recording Welsh bands. They're in the right place at the right time. And then these Welsh bands started turning up and they started making acetates. And then Dave Edmonds turned up and gradually word got round that you could go outside London and make records. Right. The list of people they've, they've recorded, it's just in the 70s, for example, they did um, Black Sabbath turned up there to do all their early stuff. They did Paranoid there. Queen did Bohemian Rhapsody, Sheer Heart Attack. Um, they went through, David Cassidy was there in the 70s. Wow. In the 80s, they did Simple Mind stuff, mm. um, Adam and the Ants, Bowie, Iggy Pop. The 90s was one of their peak times. They had the Stone Roses were there. When the Stone Roses disappeared, that's actually where they were. They lived right. with them for 13 months. Oasis, Wonder War was recorded there. Then going into the next century, uh, Coldplay. Coldplay wrote Yellow while they were there. And these two guys, there's only one guy who runs it now, the other guy set up his own studio, but the guy who's there now, they eschew everything about the music business. They have no gold mm. uh, records, no silver records, no plaques. And the, the, the key to it seems to be, they just go, oh, we don't pay them any attention. So when these rock stars land, or they come into, they don't get any attention whatsoever. They just go, there's your recording studio. There's a kettle there. Help yourselves. Mm. It's just such a refreshing documentary. All these guys turn up to talk about it. Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne says, a little bit of my heart is always in Rockfield. Right. You know, Chris Martin's there. Um, so is it quite say, a lot of good footage as well? Oh, it's some great footage, yeah. It's a lot, a lot of great archive stuff, you know. But everybody who's anybody was there. He says himself, he says, uh, Decker's, um, Abbey Road is the only other comparable studio. So they had the Beatles and Dark Side of the Moon and right. we did everything else. And we did everything yeah. else. Sounds good. Great stuff, Bill. Thanks very much indeed. Bill Burroughs, their journalist, documentary addict, telling us to watch Sean Scully in the Art of Everything, Rockfield uh, and Longshot. All pretty good selections, I'd have to say. Uh, let's get a quick phone call in with Frederick, uh, who's in Seven Oaks. Hello, Frederick. Hello. I'd just like to say that the fiscal expansionary policy that's been committed over the last couple of months has been entirely irresponsible. I mean, and especially the monetary policy as well, the Last interest rates down to what zero point one percent, yeah, and they're just going to kick the can down the road for the next uh, ten years with all these uh, sort of companies which can just barely stay alive with their. Uh, so, what do you think debt. they should be doing, Frederick? Um, well, I mean, I think it's already too late. They've, uh, I think, when they commenced uh, lockdown and completely shut down the economy, it's already contracted by twenty five percent. There's just, um, I know, as been economists on the, your program have mentioned before that it is quite painful. What's needed that. Is sort of a laissez-faire approach to do nothing. It will be sort of in the short run quite damaging, but mm. in the long run it will help. Um, and I just like because I think you mentioned uh, two weeks ago, you said um, if the Bank of England is just printing all this money and they're not borrowing it, then why don't they need to? Why do they need to pay it back? Yeah. Um, and I just think well, you're going to increase the cash flow velocity of money, which is going to increase inflation. But it hasn't um, done so far, has it? Well, I think that's down to the fact that no one's spending anything. Um, oh, that's and if not you look true. At food prices, huh? People are spending money. Well, not as much as... Uh, I mean, the economy has contracted 25%. I don't think they've um, been spending as much as they were before lockdown. No, but I mean, if you think about what people are spending in supermarkets, for example, I mean, they're spending more in supermarkets perhaps than, than they ever have. So it may well be that yeah, companies are not spending money, but I think ordinary individuals are still spending money. Well, if you look at food prices, they are they are actually increasing. The reason inflation is so low is because um, the basket of goods don't really uh, accommodate um, for food terribly much. Yeah, so again, I'm just asking you, Frederick, what would you rather they did? Well, again, it's a, it's a laissez-faire approach, but if you look at... I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Well, to do, do nothing. You, you've just got to let the... So, uh, you, so you would just let everybody go to the wall, in other words? Well, I wouldn't have let, I wouldn't have shut down the economy in the first place. Why not? Well, because, you, I mean, you've got... You've, uh, the, the government has had to um, pay for millions of people just to stay at home and do nothing. Yeah. 
it's, it, we can't afford it. So you would, have, you would have allowed everybody to continue going to work uh, despite the fact that there was a worldwide pandemic going on? Well, Sweden's, uh, Sweden's done the same approach. Well, Sweden is still, the jury's still out on Sweden. And Sweden is not comparable to Britain, no matter what you say. Well, I mean... There's I think 10 million we, people living in Sweden. There's 10 million people living in London. They're not comparable. What we're going to experience is much uh, far worse than if we had done nothing. I think, you know, you make accommodations for the people who are, are vulnerable, who are at risk. But everyone else, you know, I supported it so now. So what would you have done for people who were at risk then? The virus and a, a so what, so, what would you have, so what would you have done for people that were at risk? Well, I would allow them accommodations. You know, if you can work at home, do work at home. For those who, you know, have jobs that have to be, uh, work outside, furlough them. But don't furlough the entire economy. So you would have furloughed also, some people, but not all people. Yeah. And right. also on another that doesn't thing, sound I mean, like anything sensible to me, Frederick. That sounds bonkers. It sounds even more mad than what you're saying they did. Well, I mean, I mean, you, what you suggested is um, uh, is going to cause hyperinflation, and you say that you know. In, well, we haven't got hyperinflation. Well, I mean, you're saying in uh, well, I mean, when in Germany in the 1920s, uh, when they started their sort of uh, printing scheme program, yeah. it was a year, it was one year time lag to start um, for hyperinflation to actually uh, take the track. You think we're in any so, way comparable to Germany in the 1920s? Well, it's not a third world country like Zimbabwe or Venezuela. Right. I think there are some similarities. Um, are there, what are the similarities between Germany in the 20s and, and Britain now? Well, I mean, before um, it got into such a vast amount of debt, it was a strong economy. Yes, but it was a very different economy, wasn't it? Well, um, I don't know. I just think... Uh, I, I think, think that's the problem, a, Frederick. You don't know. I think there are, lo- I think there are a lot of... Um, I think that it's been a very um, uh, short-sighted, the policies that they've committed to. Yeah, but you've given me nothing in return, Frederick. You've had three months to think about what you should have done, and you can't tell me. (laughs) Well, I mean, what are they doing now? It's resulted resulted in a recession. And many people are saying it's a drop in the ocean. What you've just said makes absolutely no sense. I've got to go to the news, Frederick. Do call in again when you've got a better idea of what you would suggest we do instead, Okay. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.